0: Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 43. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about Beethoven's 10th string quartet, Opus 74 in E-flat major, nicknamed the Harp Quartet. Beethoven had last visited the genre in the three Razumovsky quartets of Opus 59 in 1806. String quartets were important to Beethoven. As Kerman points out in his classic book on the quartets, They were as central to his compositional output as any composer from the 19th or 20th centuries. But while the Opus 59 quartets were respected in more rarefied chamber music circles, they had not been quite the popular success that Beethoven had hoped for and expected. With that in mind, the composer may well have designed the present quartet as less taxing than the Razumovsky quartets, and more accessible at first hearing. Or, as Swofford has suggested, he desired to give the public a rest after the strenuous workout of the Opus 59 quartets. And, of course, with his mentor Haydn having then recently died, it's not unreasonable to think that the sometimes simplified and more accessible musical language employed in the quartet might be a nod backward to Haydn's earlier string quartet style. Still, if a popular success is what he was aiming for in the harp quartet, Beethoven was only partially successful, and, as British violinist Edward Dusenberg has suggested, there remain some lingering doubts about the direction the composer was headed. Some of those doubts may well have been prompted by the slow introduction to the first movement, in common time in Mark Poco adagio and Soroboce. The tonic chord of E-flat is immediately asserted by means of a distinctive motive in the first violin that begins by dropping down a minor sixth from the upper tonic note to the third of the chord below, before moving back up, first by step and then leap. We'll call it Introduction A, and I'll play it in a minute. It wouldn't be true to say that this descending interval of a sixth dominates the introduction, but it is heard again in various versions four more times in the first 11 bars. Here is a simplified version, first violin only, of the opening two bars containing Introduction A. But almost immediately, the key tilts away from E-flat major by adding a minor 7th to the tonic chord. The note is a D-flat. Which transforms the tonic chord into the dominant seventh chord in the key of the subdominant, A flat major, one of those secondary dominant type chords. And on the downbeat of the second measure, Beethoven reintroduces that dominant seventh of A flat, followed by three beats of silence. So, although it's very early, it does seem as if Beethoven is serious about heading toward A flat. When the third measure repeats the first, The pull of A flat major seems even stronger. But it's all a ruse. Measure four also includes the same chromatic alteration, the D flat, but now that D flat turns out to be part of a completely different chord. Actually an E diminished seventh chord, and we seem for a while to be headed in a different tonal direction. Here are the first eleven bars. It turns out that at least initially we're actually heading toward F minor, maybe, but it's far from obvious because there's a lot of short-term ambiguity, including some non-harmonic tones that take their time resolving. And the final chord of my excerpt contained a dissonant 7th, so there's no real sense of repose yet. As vague and unsettled as the tonality is at this point, One thing that is clear is that in measure 12, we're introduced to a new five-note motive, slurred and marked espressivo, that starts on the upbeat, ascends up a third in eighth notes, and then returns back down in quarters. We'll call it Introduction B. Angus Watson hears this motive as linked to the so-called Farewell motive from Florestan's Farewell to Life aria in Act Two of Fidelio. And there may be some connection, although we won't be getting to Fidelio for a while yet. Here's another simplified version, first violin only. Although the motive from measure one doesn't completely disappear, it makes its presence felt in the cello multiple times, this new motive dominates for the next six measures, appearing on different pitch levels, in different instruments, sometimes in inversion, and interrupted twice by two forte multiple-stop chords. All this while, the tonality remains somewhat vague and changeable. Robert Winters and Robert Martin refer to this as harmonic drift in their excellent Beethoven quartet companion. As we proceed, a new version of the first measure motive is introduced in measure 18, and the notes from the second half of that first measure a dotted quarter followed by an eighth note a step higher, are split off and employed to work up the scale chromatically for the next seven bars of the introduction, eventually crescendoing up to forte. Here is a brief and simplified example of that section, first violin only. Here's a recorded example beginning with the introduction of the second motive I described, the one starting with the three ascending eighth notes, and extending to the end of the introduction. You'll notice that we don't really feel tonally secure until the very last measure. And there's a reason for that. When the actual exposition begins and we're introduced to the official first subject, it will be solidly in the tonic key of E-flat major. But when that happens, the composer naturally wants that key to feel fresh, certainly not exhausted anyway and thus the introduction is often designed to provide enough tonal variety that when the first subject is introduced in the original tonic key, it seems not just like more of the same, but a real event. When it finally arrives in measure 25, the first subject has three distinct components. The first is an ascending tonic triad in staccato quarter notes played by the first violin, forte, in measures 1 and 2 which we'll refer to as Motive 1A. The second 1B, played piano by the second violin, starts on the second half of B3 in the second bar with three ascending legato eighths and moves in a repeated pattern alternating descending stepwise motion and ascending skips of a third. Here's a simplified example of this second motive, 1B, first violin only. Because it begins on the end of beat 3 with 3 ascending 8th notes, it may at first remind the listener of the introduction B motive I played earlier. But as the melody continues and the ascending 8th notes are folded into a longer 4-note motive that is repeated numerous times on different pitch levels and with some variation, the resemblance becomes less evident and in fact, the idea soon assumes a secondary role as a counter-melody to the central melodic idea that appears in the first violin, beginning with a sustained note in the third bar of the theme. We'll call it 1C. It's a broader, more spacious, and quite elegant theme that unfolds largely over a tonic pedal with just a touch of chromaticism to keep it from being too predictable. Here are the opening measures. Here's a recording of the eleven measure first theme or first subject concluding with the beginning of the modulatory transition. In measure seven you'll hear the viola come in with its version of the theme an octave down while the first and second violins provide a slower moving countermelody. The modulatory transition is a simple but very colorful one primarily because it's dominated by pizzicatos, first in the lower strings and then in the upper against throbbing eighth notes. The melodic activity is simple enough, mostly ascending triads broken into two parts, but the fact that pizzicato notes take on the primary melodic function is unusual here. We've certainly heard Beethoven use pizzicatos before, but even though the result may not be particularly harp-like, It is used more prominently here than in any previous work, as a number of commentators have pointed out. Beethoven once again inserts that alien D-flat into the E-flat major flow, just as he had in the introduction, and there is some other passing chromaticism as well, some of it a little surprising. But in the end, there's no question that the goal is the key of the dominant, B-flat major, and he arrives there securely enough. As you heard, the new key arrives a little bit before the actual second theme appears. That theme begins with a sustained note, a half note tied into a series of undulating sixteenth notes, somewhat reminiscent of measure nine in the introduction. We hear it first in the cello, playing above the viola, which doubles it a sixth below. A measure later, the second violin takes it up an octave higher, and a half measure later, first violin does the same adding another octave. Meanwhile, viola and second violin have moved on to something of a counter-subject in contrary motion. It's this so-called counter-subject which ascends in four-sixteenths before descending in four, basically the reverse of the original subject. This then dominates the next several measures, moving back and forth between viola and cello. Against this, the first violin, and to a lesser extent the second, Unfolds the second part of the second subject, a graceful melody that alternates large triadic leaps with accented but gentle nonharmonic tones. It's too lovely to be a closing section, but eventually it turns into one, before leading to a jaunty little codetta, all parts moving together in homophonic rhythm, with offbeat accents abounding, before diminishing to a final pianissimo B flat major chord ending the exposition. Here is the second subject, the second part of which transforms into a closing section and then onto a brief codetta. The development section, a relatively lengthy one compared to the unusually short exposition, short at least for a work composed at this point in Beethoven's career, begins by quoting the first subject in a clearly recognizable form, although the distribution of melodic ideas is a bit different. All three of the thematic elements I mentioned earlier are in evidence Although we're only nine measures into the development section, when it becomes clear that it's 1C that will become the composer's early favorite, particularly the first two measures of it. Here is 1C again in its original presentation. In the development section at this point, notes 3, 4, and 5 of motive 1C are split off and tossed around from one instrument to the next, even as motive 1B continues against this interplay for a couple of measures, and the original form of 1C is heard in the cello, although high in its range, against all the motivic fragmentation. Meanwhile, we're on the move tonally again tending first toward F minor, via some diminished 7th chords in that key, and then a little later toward a calmer but still very robust F major. Here's the beginning of the development section. <laughs> Near the end of my excerpt, you could hear the complete version of 1C, not just the fragmented version coming from F major but concluding in C major. You couldn't really say it was a particularly subtle version of 1C since it has by now increased in volume to fortissimo, added weak beat sforzando accents and increased the sense of agitation by having the middle strings double each eighth note to a 16th. There's just enough chromaticism as we proceed to keep the tonality in question, although E flat minor is expressed clearly enough as we approach the ending of the development section. The earlier level of semi frenzied activity does not continue to the end of the section. Things quiet down substantially, and the level of rhythmic activity and texture are both reduced. And the last thing we hear before arriving at the recapitulation is a little reprise of the pizzicato arpeggios heard in the transition into the second subject. But the gentler pizzicatos soon give way to crescendoing arco triplets so that the actual return of the first theme seems more like an event. The recapitulation, although by no means an exact reproduction of the exposition, is almost surprisingly orthodox, so we're going to jump ahead to the coda section. It begins very quietly with references to Motive 1C from the first subject, again with the second measure splintered off and tossed back and forth between first violin, second violin, and viola against sustained double-stop notes in the cello. Not surprisingly, there is some tonal wandering here as well. After seven bars of toying with motive 1C, we return to ascending pizzicato arpeggios, this time in quarter notes, against much faster-moving ascending arpeggios of seventh chords, initially diminished seventh chords on A in first violin, which the listener may well expect to resolve up a half-step to B-flat, the dominant in the key. But that's not quite what happens. Instead, these diminished seventh chords resolve to more diminished seventh chords, this time on D. That doesn't seem so unreasonable when you think of those diminished sevenths as likely to resolve up a half step to the tonic of E flat major. But once again, that's not what happens. I'm not going to try to trace every clever little harmonic machination from this point on, because the tonality does eventually stabilize. And start heading in the direction of the tonic key as second violin and viola take turns quoting from the fuller, more expansive version of Motive 1C, each statement rising a little higher. In the final measures, the syncopated block chords of the original codetta are brought back briefly. The pizzicato arpeggios are brought back briefly. We crescendo, we quiet very briefly, only to build up again to the final multiple-stop chords of the movement. Here is the coda, beginning with the references to Motive 1C, the fragmented version, and continuing on to the end of the movement. We're going to spend a little less time with the slow movement, although it is a distinctive one. The movement is in 3 8 and marked Adagio Manon Troppo. It's in the key of the subdominant A flat, which is the normal key for the slow movement, although we've long since learned that Beethoven doesn't always do normal when it comes to key relationships between movements or even within movements. The form is something of a variation rondo. The main thematic idea is repeated twice more with variation and with episodes in between. The first theme marked cantabile begins in the first violin a measure after the tonic chord is introduced by violin 2 viola and cello all marked meso voce. The melody begins high in the violin's range on the third of the A-flat tonic chord and circles slowly around it for the next seven measures frequently touching on the upper and lower neighbor tones. Here are the first nine bars. ¶¶ The opening melody has been widely praised as one of Beethoven's finest, and one that shows his increasing sophistication as we move toward the end of the composer's middle period. But this melody is not completely untroubled as it unfolds. The main thematic idea in the first violin is serene enough, but chromatic inflections in the lower parts lend a certain degree of melancholy restlessness almost from the beginning. The first phrase concludes predictably enough on the dominant, but the second seems to veer toward F minor before being yanked back to the original tonic at the last second. The second part of the theme, we can call it a refrain theme, although it certainly doesn't sound like the typical Rondo melody, introduces some new ideas. The first begins with a couple of weak beat descending sixteenth notes leading down to a four note pattern ascending by step. Watson links this to the farewell motive again, but I am less confident of any purposeful connection here. This is followed by another new motive, a quite poignant one, which also begins with two descending sixteenth notes on B3, the first on a flatted seventh. But this time the second note is repeated on the downbeat of the following measure, where, doubled a third lower by the second violin, it, or more precisely, the note played by the second violin, is heard as a dissonance over a chromatic chord, a secondary dominant seventh that will direct us toward B-flat minor. As we arrive at the B-flat minor chord, the melodic motive is repeated, now with both violins landing on an accented dissonance. An accented dissonance appears on the downbeat of the next measure as well, but finally, in the last two bars, we do come to rest on the tonic chord. It sounds complicated, but it's easy to hear. This is followed by a very peaceful sounding little tag of six measures over a repeated tonic pedal, which references some of the earlier motivic ideas and closes on the tonic chord. We're going to move on now to the first episode. The two episodes, and I'm only going to play the first, are not strongly contrasting as you might expect in a typical finale rondo, but slow movement rondos are different especially those that combine variations with rondo form. The first episode begins in A-flat minor with a new motive, based initially on repeated descending thirds in eighths and sixteenth notes, sometimes followed by a pair of descending eighth notes. Watson identifies this as a weeping motive, the use of falling thirds as a conventional symbol for weeping going back at least to the Baroque era. As the new thematic idea broadens out by climbing up an A-flat minor triad before beginning a long descent, the key shifts to C-flat major, first tentatively and then more convincingly, cadencing on a C-flat major chord. After a while, we shift up to D-flat minor, while staying in touch with a weeping motive, especially notes 3 through 6. Eventually a transition passage returns us to A-flat major for the return of the refrain melody, now varied. Here is the first part of the episode, moving from A-flat minor with the presentation of the weeping motive, through C-flat and into D-flat minor, where the weeping motive re-enters prominently. The refrain theme, as it returns, is certainly recognizable, but there have been some changes made. The melody itself, again in the first violin, is played down an octave, freely and rather busily ornamented at times, and the accompanying parts, from second violin, viola and cello, are much more active. Here is the return of the refrain. It's a very interesting movement, conventionally lyrical in many ways, but also somewhat more troubled in its lyricism than we're used to hearing, at least dating back to the Opus 18 string quartets. Kerman finds the brief coda particularly interesting, as it brings back the minor key opening of the first episode, which, after first crescendoing, is gradually nudged aside for a final series of dominant and tonic chords, which quietly dies away. But we are going to move on to the third movement. It's another untitled scherzo in C minor, 3-4 time, marked presto and opens forte. And, as no commentator can resist mentioning, it begins with a repeated short, 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 long motive in the first violin that evokes the composer's most popular symphony. The feel is rather different here, though, in part because we're in triple meter, and in part because Beethoven goes back and forth between dividing the three beat measures into two equal parts, or, as more commonly done, into three. Here are the first eight bars. I'll play the repeat because this goes by so quickly. Of course, the Fifth Symphony, with its famous opening motive, was also in C minor. But as I noted in Episode 38, that was certainly not the first time Beethoven had made use of a short, 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 long rhythmic motive with a gap between its repetitions. And as far as that goes, Beethoven had no copyright on that particular rhythmic device, and plenty of composers had made use of it, sometimes just incidentally, sometimes very purposefully. Is Beethoven evoking the Fifth Symphony here? Perhaps a little, but not to recreate the mood, and not, I think, to mock the original although since this is a scherzo in all but name, there may be a little of that involved. After all, Beethoven was naturally pleased with the success of the Fifth Symphony, but he sometimes seemed to feel that listeners made too much of some works and not nearly enough of some others. You probably noticed that the famous motive appears initially only in the first violin with second violin and viola delivering a flow of stepwise eighth notes in thirds, marked lightly or delicately in the score, against it. The first violin then joins in with the flow, softly, creating a series of mostly parallel first inversion chords, ending on the dominant. Since the tempo marking is presto, all of this goes by very quickly, of course. After the first section is repeated, the second is even more insistent on the short-short-short-long motive, with all four instruments joining in in octaves for the first eight bars, repeating a descending half-step motive again and again, originally on the flat-sixth scale degree going down to the dominant note, and then on the flat-second scale degree going down to the tonic note. But this second half step relationship is actually a ploy in a longer term scheme to set up D flat major as the new key and after that F minor and then back to C minor all of this barely relieved by a few rapid staccato scale lines and some skyrocketing arpeggios and the goal of all of this is the introduction of a new melodic idea really no more than a handful of short repeated motives very Rossini-like actually, here is the second section without repeat. Plenty of commentators have referred to this movement as a scherzo despite its lack of the label, but it must be admitted that the contrasting section that follows is anything but a typical trio section. It starts fortissimo and marked piu presto quasi prestissimo in C major with a flowing series of quarter notes in the cello which, as Watson points out, could be heard as another version of the farewell motive. At any rate, we soon find that the mostly scale-wise undulating flow is underpinning a slower-moving melody in dotted half notes in the viola and later second violin. I say slower-moving, but it's all relative because everything is going at breakneck speed in most performances. It almost seems a bit like an exercise in Species Counterpoint especially with the longer held notes taking on the role of a Renaissance cantus firmus. The impression is reinforced when the first violin enters in measure 20 of the trio by imitating the cello's line up a couple of octaves, and the second violin joins in with even longer note values against the speeding quarter notes. Here is the first trio section, or the section replacing a more normal trio section, going back into the first repeat of the scherzo section. <music> Of course, the results sound nothing at all like Renaissance counterpoint, but the partial resemblance to the devices employed in a counterpoint exercise would not be completely surprising, because Beethoven had recently been spending a fair amount of time on preparing exercises for his erstwhile composition student, and more importantly benefactor, the Archduke Rudolph. Following the trio, the scherzo section returns, as does the trio. When the scherzo section returns for the final time, it concludes very quietly, not with a cadence on C minor, but with a fermata on an inverted dominant 7th in the key of E-flat, the key of our finale. And once again, we forge ahead directly from one movement to the next. Here is the final return of the scherzo section with no repeats taken this time the music crescendos briefly to mark the new coda section and features sustained chords over a continuation of the pulsating eighth notes in the cello again we seem to be heading toward d flat major but as the upper strings join in on the pulsating eighth notes again pianissimo we finally find ourselves heading toward e flat and we conclude with a fermata on the dominant seventh in that key. Earlier I mentioned the probability that Beethoven designed this quartet to be a more relaxed and accessible work, at least compared to his earlier rather difficult Razumovsky string quartets of Opus 59. Still, I did point out some features in the earlier movements that listeners in his day might well have found somewhat odd or at least a little bit quirky. But now, in the finale, we encounter a perfectly delightful but in many respects conventional movement, based on a traditional theme and variations format, one that could have been composed, except perhaps for a few details here and there, a decade earlier. Following without break from the previous movement, were in E-flat major, 2-4 time, marked Allegretto con Variazione, and begins Piano. The first part of the theme, starting softly and then crescendoing, is played by first violin, and begins with a dotted eighth sixteenth note figure as a pickup. This initial motive, which fills in a descending third, starting on the fifth of the scale, is heard five more times, first up a fourth from its original starting point, and then moving down the scale, with the simple diatonic chords beneath it filled in by the instruments below. The pattern is broken in the second half of the sixth bar, where there is a little passing chromaticism in the violin one melody, and we actually come to a close on a G major chord, which is the dominant of C minor, not of E flat major. Here is the opening eight bar section with repeat. We might have expected the second part of the theme, 12 bars rather than 8, to start on C minor, because of its dominant closing the first part. But instead, the G major chord sends us to C major, which turns out to be the start of a familiar circle of fifths progression, every chord serving as the dominant of the chord that comes after it. That pattern breaks off after four chords, and we begin to work our way back to E flat major after pausing on a D major chord, which has absolutely nothing to do with the key of E-flat major. We then make our way back to E-flat, largely by employing the same motive that dominates the first part of the melody, although now somewhat varied and alternating between ascending and descending versions of that motive. Here's the second part, this time without repeat. The first variation is clever if a bit generic. It follows the harmonic progression of the original theme, both parts, but barely references its melodic content. Instead, it makes use initially of a series of staccato chordal arpeggios starting in the cello with the first violin chasing it cannon-like up a fourth, accompanied by free inversions of the same pattern in the inner parts. After a couple of measures, the arpeggios are replaced by scale fragments, played staccato, initially descending in the cello, chased again up a sixth by the first violin, and accompanied again by free inversions in the middle parts. These scale fragments, descending here but in the second section we'll hear them in an ascending pattern, are really the only link to the melodic motives used in the original theme where they appear in measures 7 and 8 in connection with the cadence. Here is the first part of Variation 1 without repeat. The second half also follows the same harmonic progression, complete with the initial circle of fifths. The first four bars begin with the same descending pickup figure in the cello, but then introduce a new four-note motive, three descending steps followed by a descending skip or leap in first violin, with the cello harmonizing the figure mostly in sixths and sevenths. These two dominating voices are again accompanied by the inner voices, alternating ascending duplets. In the second four bars, we return to something of a canonic relationship between cello and first violin with a pattern of ascending staccato eighths taken directly from bars 7 and 8 of the first part of the theme. These staccato eighth notes soon spread throughout the texture in different variants. Here is Variation 1, Part 2. Again no repeats. The second variation is very different. The viola is featured in the first part with an attractive flowing melody of triplets marked sempre Dolce over slower-moving harmonic support, sometimes in double stops, from the other three instruments. This melody bears a slight relationship to the original theme, but lacking its rather distinctive rhythmic landmarks, most notably the dotted 8th-16th note patterns, Most listeners will focus on the differences rather than the similarities here. The harmonic progression emulates the original in general terms, but lacks the nuances of the original in terms of harmonic rhythm, although some added passing chromaticism here contributes to the variation's slightly more emotional tinge. Here are the first eight bars. The second part of the second variation varies more significantly in terms of harmony, although there is still some reference to the circle of fifths. Melodically, the first and second violins begin by playing a more significant role, doubling and echoing the main viola idea, but they soon lapse back into their more passive accompanying role. Here is the second part of the second variation. The third variation reverts to the repeated patterns of the first, although arpeggio patterns are now replaced by a constant flow of sixteenth notes in second violin and cello, with offbeat eighth note accompaniment added in by first violin and viola. Here is the first part. That initial motive heard in the second violin played an important part in the first half of Variation 3, but it plays an even more important role in the second half. It immediately links up with its inversion down a step, and then the whole eight-note pattern is played down a step. Meanwhile, a measure later, the cello takes up the idea and imitates it down a fifth. So the texture, enriched with some sforzando accents, is quite busy for the first 4 bars. The texture thins and the dynamics quiet for the next 4 bars, as the same motive is now doubled in thirds and tossed back and forth from violin 1 and viola to violin 2 and cello, sometimes in inverted form. For the last 4 bars, back to forte, a variant of the original motive is heard again in thirds second violin and cello, while first violin and viola return to their offbeat eighth notes. Here is the second half of this highly energetic variation with repeat. The fourth variation parallels the second in its more broadly lyrical approach. The leisurely melody for the first eight bars is marked Sempre Dolce and presented in the first violin entirely in quarter notes. It begins on a pickup note on the fifth of the scale, but its most distinctive attribute is an ascending leap of a sixth in the first full measure, followed by a gradual descent down the scale a contour that echoes the opening theme. Elsewhere in the texture, we hear a repeated figure in eighth notes, also marked Dolce, led by the cello, but also involving viola and second violin, often in parallel motion. Here are the first eight bars. For the second section, the melody, again taken by first violin, also reflects the shape of the opening theme, at least for the opening measures. But the final measures quote from the first four bars of the first section of this variation, with its ascending major sixth followed by a gradual descent. This plays out over a busier accompaniment from the lower strings, one which features a more expansive four-note pattern, Again starting in the cello but quickly spreading to viola and second violin. Here is the second part of Variation 4 without repeat. Variation number five returns to more robust repeated patterns, similar to those heard in variations one and three. First violin dominates again with a series of rapid arpeggios, while violin two, viola, and cello all stay busy with repeated staccato three-note motives filling in the harmony below. The pattern largely continues in the second section, although the accompanying texture is thickened somewhat by the use of double stops. The sixth variation may well be the most interesting. It's marked un poco più vivace, and initially pianissimo, with eighth note triplets on the tonic note in the cello, introducing the first part of the variation and then continuing on through it as a pedal. The melody is in first violin, a series of legato eighth notes doubled mostly in thirds by second violin, with the viola proceeding in the same rhythm, but often in contrary motion. Here's the first part of Variation 6. The next section of 12 bars introduces a bit of a surprise, as the rearticulated pedal on E-flat moves down a step to D-flat, and that tonality is established for the first seven and a half measures, before the cello eventually pulls it back up to E-flat. Here is the second section prefaced by the last few bars of the first. Upon the completion of the 6th variation, we hear a little transition to a brief coda, one that continues to make use of the throbbing triplet 8th notes, although now transferred first to violin 1 and then later viola. Melodic motives from the 5th variation continue to appear as well, and we also encounter some new, flashier ideas in violin 1, as we crescendo briefly leading eventually to an emphatic cadence on E flat that marks the beginning of the brief coda. The throbbing eighth notes continue in the lower strings, but soon our attention is directed to a rhythmically distinctive tune. A series of staccato eighth notes followed by two sixteenths played high in the first violin's range, with short rhythmic interjections played off against it in the lower strings. This jaunty new tune is only with us for eight measures, and played pianissimo at that, before it drops away to be replaced by another series of triplet figures, played staccato in block chords, which not only crescendo and decrescendo, but accelerando as well, leading to an even faster closing section, featuring a flow of sixteenth notes played in multiple octaves, complete with offbeat accents all of it coming to a quick close on two final and surprisingly quiet tonic chords. Here is that transition, the coda, and the conclusion. This movement is all very charming and, as I mentioned earlier, sounds in places rather like a theme and variations movement the composer might have produced years earlier. So, focusing on this movement, it seems reasonable to suggest that Beethoven was in fact composing in a style which he judged to be easier for the public to digest compared to the relatively difficult Opus 59 string quartets. But Beethoven scholar Lewis Lockwood has made the point that to think of Opus 74 as a light and genial diversion from the more serious Beethoven is a cliché that could not be more mistaken. And when you take into account the emotional ambiguity of the first two movements and the dramatic intensity of the scherzo movement, even if some of the drama may well have been intended as an ironic or self-mocking gesture you can understand Lockwood's point. And yet we are often influenced strongly by our final impressions, and given the impression made by this finale, the only variations finale in the string quartets, it's hard to completely dismiss the notion that Beethoven was seeking something of a popular success in this work. So the situation with this harp quartet and Beethoven's intentions in regard to it may never be completely understood. For our next episode, we will look at two piano sonatas completed in 1809, number 24 in F-sharp major, opus 78, and number 25 in G major, opus 79.